So I, I think it's a huge mistake for founders to have any kind of financial need in the venture. Probably for the first year. Just have zero expectation. Assume you're, assume you're actually going to lose money. That's, that's what happened in our case. Hello, everyone. My name is Christina Chappell, and I'm the investment director at 11 Tribes Ventures and your host for the Resilient Founder podcast. There are plenty of podcasts out there that talk about how to boost revenue, the best go-to-market strategies, and how to maximize your business outcome. And while we certainly care about all of that, that's not necessarily what we will be discussing here. On this podcast, we talk about the downward journey, highlighting stories of human resilience, discussing the strain, both highs and lows of entrepreneurship, and equipping our listeners with the best practices to run and finish their races well. Today, we have Carlos Caro with us. Carlos has a history as a fintech executive. Today, he leads credit acquisition at Caribou, a fintech marketplace for auto refinance. And prior to Caribou, he was an executive at Credit Karma, building his division from scratch to a team of 25. In this episode, we will walk through Carlos's story, how he has embodied resilience after winding down his startup, and we'll share bits of wisdom for those who are presently building. So with that, let's get started. Carlos, thank you so much for being here. Hey, good morning, Christina. It's great to be here. Um, so let's begin with your personal story. You know, where did you grow up? Who were your people? What were some aspects of your upbringing that you felt like formed you? Yeah, so I'm, I'm currently right outside Washington, D.C. And my story didn't far, start too far from here. Um, I grew up in Reston, Virginia, which is about 30 minutes from the city. Um, but the, the interesting twist is I was born in Venezuela. Yeah. So, um, and my entire family was kind of born and raised there. Um, I was the firstborn, um, you know, but we, we moved here in the early eighties. I was a three years old and didn't speak any English. They threw me in school. My parents were struggling to learn English. Um, but the, it, it wasn't the classic immigrant story. It, they were doing well in Venezuela. They were both engineers. They both had good jobs. It was a prosperous time in Venezuela. It was my dad got a job offer up here and specifically in DC. And he said, yeah, I'll take it for a year or two. It should be a good opportunity and we'll move back. That was the plan. So I came along for an extended vacation is what they thought. And it's, 38 years later, and here we still are. My, my dad's still here. My mom's still here. And we've made a whole life um, out of it. Uh, but to your question on my upbringing and some of the things I, I, I took out of it, um, I, w- I was the token Spanish kid in school. Like I, was, like I grew up in a neighborhood where it was predominantly white. I think there might have been an Asian kid here and there, but I couldn't. I didn't. I don't remember in school ever connecting with another Spanish speaker, so I was kind of the outsider for the most part. You know, when when my parents would bring me to events, their broken English, you know, made it hard for them to connect with the other parents. So, what I observed as a kid growing up was nothing was easy, nothing was handed to you. You weren't entitled to anything. You had to work for it. So you. Um, I, I still have that spirit and that mindset, but I think it came from a very early age. 
from kind of having seen what it's like to grow up and make a career in a family in a country where you just you don't connect culturally with the people you don't connect from a language perspective um fortunately for me i assimilated i think really well and it's generally one of the things i do well is put me in a group of different people i'll find something to connect with in that group whether it be a hobby whether it be a place i've traveled whether it be a book i've seen whatever i will i will find common thread and connect with it and i think i'm able to do that because i kind of had to as a kid uh to make friends um but that that was a that was a very kind of important part of my upbringing i think the other piece that sticks with me is just like a an appreciation for culture and how f- human beings kind of deal with each other um i can't imagine kind of a culture more different than what i observed in venezuela over the holidays you know people dancing till 3 in the morning drinking whiskey like it it was like festive fun but over the top right like every holiday was every aunt every cousin packed into whatever space we could find and it was just you know it was joyful it was fun and it was just this energy that i never found during the holidays here in in the states and that's just like a small example but you know when i would go hang out with my friends families and i would compare it to what i experienced with my family it was just very different and what i took out of that whole thing was look there's no right or wrong way to raise a family or to interact with another so you know group of people it's all about culture and norms and um they all have pros and cons right like at at, at this point in my life i appreciate having quiet time after work and space and like you know <laughs> you know so being able to take a quiet walk yeah solitude and that's not something that's uh it's not it's not that's not common in venezuelan culture like in in venezuelan culture you come home and there's an aunt and an uncle and somebody there waiting for you and if you're not talking to them and hanging out you're you're kind of a bad person <laughs> for for wanting your own personal space so um those are kind of two memorable parts of my childhood that I, th- I i still connect with for culture i'm curious how you've seen you know the differences in culture in your upbringing also manifest in you know different cultures at companies can you speak to what your career journey has looked like up until this point and maybe after giving the high level touch on you know what were some of the nuances of those places that you worked um and if you have an eye a particular eye for culture what was that like at the different companies yeah that's a really good question um So I guess as far my professional journey started out in the academic field. So I was a research assistant for economists at Harvard and MIT. Actually, that sounds really fancy, and it kind of was. It felt cool. Um, you'll still, if you Google some of the folks I worked with, like my names are still kind of listed on their on their papers. So it's um, I have that internet fame now from from my research days. Um, but I, I thought I wanted to be a, an economist. So I had spent effectively my whole life training in, um, in math and, and econ. And I'd, I was accepted to a PhD program at Columbia. And Did someone model that for you? 
Were no. there economists that you looked up to? How did you no, even find that no, it was, an economist was a discipline? It was purely just like intellectual curiosity. Like I just, I found the intersection between math and like how people think and behave really interesting. So like that's, and that's still something you'll see me write and talk a lot about is like behavioral human behavior, economics. psychology. Um, I inject analogies into poker because I, I'm a former poker player and this is, a, it, I'm about to connect all the dots for you here in my story. <laughs> so, um, so I'm first year at Columbia now, and I have a full ride scholarship from the National Science Foundation. So they pay all my tuition. They give me $30,000 a year. Um, room and board was paid by Columbia. So it was like, it was kind of like this dream set up for a graduate student. And my first semester, I'll say went, okay. It was good, but not great. It, it wasn't to my undergrad standards. Like it wasn't A's across the stack. It was like a B and an A minus. And it was like, fine. So we're ranking good based on performance. Performance. Yes. Um, inside something started feeling not right about the whole thing. Well, so like semester one, there was something off. Semester two, the wheels came off. Like probably like C's, probably a D somewhere. The dean of the program approached me towards the end. He's like, look, man, you better get it together by over the summer. And you're going to have to retest on some of the, what they call the, the certification exams. Like I, I just didn't meet the bar when, when we tested in, in May. He's like, but look, I've seen you in class. I know you're, I know you're sharp. You're going to figure this out. So he gave me like, he said all the right words to like send me off to the summer and like come back to like sort this thing out. But then I, you know, I got home, uh, back to my parents' house. I had zero motivation to do any of it. I didn't want to read the books. I didn't want to like talk to other students. I didn't want to do any of it. And it forced me to really take a step back and figure out like, well, what's going on here? Like I've never experienced this level of demotivation in my life. Like mm -hmm. I was always an A student. I was always exceeding. I was always, you know, at the top of the charts. And here I was getting C's and D's. And getting told, hey, you better get it together or like we're effectively kicking you out. So I had I had to make a move, right? Like sitting back and cruising wasn't an option. I either had to lean in and figure the thing out or go a different way. And what struck me about the whole first year was how abstract it all was. Like we weren't actually talking about human decision making and we weren't talking about real data. We weren't looking at how companies behave. We were looking at abstract models. Like that was, that was the focus. And, um, you know, I spent time thinking about, well, what do people do after these programs? And the majority are professors and they write papers that very few people understand or access or even read. Mm. Right. And so then I, I, I like, I zoomed 10 years forward, 20 years forward. And I was like, can I imagine myself happy? So let's, let's assume I get through this test. Right? And I get through my PhD, four more years. It's a five-year program. Am I going to be happy on the end of it? And it was a clear no for me. Like, it was actually very clear. I was like, no, I don't want that life. And the reason is I want to have an impact on people's lives. I don't want to sit in a, in a room at a fancy university writing papers that nobody ever reads that doesn't have an impact on anyone. Yes, I might impact like this very small circle of ac academics. But I actually, like, 
I'm a very practical person at the end of the day. I'm competitive um, and I want to see my work drive real outcome. And that was totally missing. Um, at the same time, this was when I was getting into poker and I was playing the game and like competing, winning and losing money, making real decisions. It was all very tangible. That's what I loved about poker is I got to see the game right there. I'd either win or lose. I'd go home and I'd think about, well, how do I do this better next time? So it's way more iterative, way more real life. No theory. I mean, there is theoretical models behind it, um, but it's not, um, it wasn't the focus, right? The focus was go in there, play, make good decisions, win money. And like, I got really energized by that. So when I, when I, when I wrote the email to the Dean saying, Hey, I'm out of the program. I remember it very clearly. As soon as I hit send, I was like, wow, what a relief. This is off my back. This is over. I didn't know what I wanted to do next. I was playing poker. I was having fun with it. So I did that for like nine more months. I traveled. I was in Aruba, Las Vegas, London, Paris, just anywhere where I could find. On good... tour. Yeah. On yeah, tour. Right. Kind of. Yeah. But like, you know, it was, I was winning money in the games. I was having fun. I was learning a lot um, and I still write about it. Like that nine month stretch where I played poker for 10 hours a day, I'd learned a lot about risk taking, expected value, Monte Carlo simulation. Like there's a bunch of stuff I learned um, and it's formed kind of how I think about business too. And I'll, I'll connect my poker experience to entrepreneurship later. Um, right. But what a moment the, of the, agency the, that you had when you hit send on that email. So many of us live shackled to the shoulds of life, um, you know, or just look around and say, okay, if society is impressing this belief on me that, oh, I need to go finish this postdoctorate program or finish um, whatnot. And then you stay there, even though you know it's not right or disaligned from what you want the outcome of your life to be um, having that moment. And I think this is sort of the life of a founder or entrepreneur is like just taking steps, marching, hitting the send button, and then dealing with the consequences. Um, I had a friend say a funny quote back in school that in life, there are no rules, just consequences, <laughs> which I don't fully subscribe to, but it is one way to see the world. And another part of your story that I'm hearing is, you know, of course there's theory for how to play poker and how to play it well, just like there's theory for producing this academic research. But it seemed like in academia, that environment lacked sort of the anchor down to the ground floor of like, okay, here's how we put this into practice. Like, here's how I see the fruit of my labor um, and the impact that it's having. Whereas in poker, you are able to, um, you know, see the outcome of your decision-making and see how it's influencing other factors as opposed to the theory, just living in the stratosphere and not ever coming down. Yeah. Yeah. And the other piece of your story that I also heard is, you know, as people were motivated both intrinsically and extrinsically, there's always a blend of motivations. I find at least when I consider my life, looking back, if I was purely motivated by extrinsics of just, you know, wanting to perform or get A's for the sake of having that external validation, um, that became empty, especially in the face of when I was dealing with 
difficult things at home or, you know, like faced with schoolwork versus being there for my friends when they were in a difficult season. Um, but, you know, even for academia and being an economist, I heard that like the intellectual curiosity, like that's very intrinsic. But when it was just you're put into an environment where you didn't see the fruit of your labor and you were just being motivated by performance, like it didn't sustain. Um, I think for entrepreneurs, if, you know, most companies exit between the five to eight year mark, you know, it's not just like an 18 month sprint in the beginning. Um, like you have to have a motivator, a no North star in this blend of extrinsic and intrinsic that will sustain for five to eight years or even longer at times. Yeah. No, I think that that all lands. And the, the, the thing that I'd add to it that I learned about myself there, but I didn't connect the dots fully on it until like seven years later. But what, what was missing in my research days was the feedback loop between the work you produce and the impact it has on other people. So like, just think about that as a researcher, right? You put a paper together, it takes you, it might take you a year to write the paper and then you submit it for publishing. Then the editor takes a look at it six months later and then you put it out there and then the community has to hear of it. They have to read it. You might not get the feedback loop for two years on what people mm -hmm. think of that work. Right. And I'm a highly impatient person. I can't wait <laughs> two years for feedback. So it's one of the reasons I write on LinkedIn all the time. Within 30 mm -hmm. minutes of posting, I know the post worked straight up. Like you have 300 impressions on it, you know, <laughs> like it, did it work or not? And then you learn and then you can analyze it and say, okay, well, what about this piece of content didn't resonate? What didn't work? And then you can go back the next morning and write another one. Right. And like, that's how I learn. And, and that's one of the reasons back to my professional story, when I left, um, uh, when I left the academic world, played poker, learned, yeah, this is interesting. This is fun. I don't see myself doing this as a career. Highly stressful. Like there are some days where there was one day where I, I literally lost half of the money I had to my name in about three hours. It was like a major shock that that was even possible. But like the variance in the game is like entrepreneurship is nothing compared to putting down meaningful amounts of money in a no limit hold'em game and, and playing for hours, right? Like that's, um, it's a scary thing to do. It's probably bad for my health, bad for my blood pressure. Like it, there's all sorts of problems with that lifestyle. So I said, look, I'm going to keep playing poker. It's fun, but I don't want to do this 24 seven. I don't see myself getting married and having a family and supporting them through this kind of a pursuit. Like it's just so much variance in my emotions and my financials. Like it's going to be really hard. So I ended up at Capital One as an analyst and I was answering and dealing with similar questions to what I dealt with as an economist, as an economist, right? Like you change the price of a loan. What, you know, how, how many people take that loan? What are the behaviors of the people that take that loan? How do they chart? Like how do they behave over time? Is it a profitable Thing. So a lot of math, a lot of human psychology, uh, but it was all applied. Like there was a business that was running and my recommendations and work drove a specific decision. And I was the one recommending, do we do it or not? How do we do it? How do we execute? All those things. So uh, it was, uh, Capital One was a great environment for me because it 
it leveraged my analytical thinking, but it was also an environment that rewarded communication. There are a bunch of former consultants. And if you didn't write a nice deck that laid out the whole strategy and was beautiful, nobody paid attention to what you had to say. And I came in naturally strong on that dimension. I don't know exactly where I picked that up along the way, probably somewhere along high school and college. Um, I did enough humanities classes, read enough books where, I don't know, I had some instinct on it, but I was never formally trained in writing. But I remember the first year at Capital One, a manager came up to me and said, hey, we love the way you do this. Can you coach others on it? And I was just like, kind of way put off by the comic. I didn't feel like I was good at it. I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. I was being asked to teach it to others. And I was just like, this is bizarre. I said, but I said, yes. And like, you know, I did that. Um, But all that to say, it was a a good environment um, for my mix of skills. The thing that I noticed probably too late, um, it's about five years into it, is that this environment moves too slowly for me. Again, back to the example where the feedback loop is probably years in, in the research land. At Cap One, it was probably months, six months to nine months between making a recommendation, putting it in market, and maybe years to seeing the outcomes. Felt too slow. There was too much governance, too much bureaucracy. Things took too long. There was a part of me that said, hey, I'm just not, I'm not learning as much as I should. Like if I was at a smaller company, this would all move faster. And the feedback loop between setting intent, putting it into market, seeing how it went and doing that over and over and over. That's what I want to do. So that was a pivot for me. Like, let me go try smaller companies. The first small company I worked at, I loved it. I loved the pace. I loved the hustle. I loved the autonomy I had to make decisions and do stuff. It was the wrong company. It was the wrong role for me. But I got a taste of the smaller company environment. And I was like completely hooked. It was like that same feeling when I started playing poker of like, wow, this is fun. It doesn't feel like work anymore. That's how I feel like when I'm in a small company environment. It really doesn't feel like work to me. Um, so I've, I've been playing in my career for the last 10 years. You know, ever since I left Cap One, it's like, okay, I get to work. I'm playing this game that's fun that I enjoy and I happen to get paid for it, which is awesome. But, you know, I've uh, like you mentioned earlier in, in the intro, I was at Credit Karma. I'm now at Caribou. You know, I founded a company. Um, all that stuff felt like play to me. None of it felt like work. And like that's that's where I want to stay for the rest of my career. Right. You know, if you look back on the story of great entrepreneurs, one sticks out to me, Estee Lauder, and she was obsessed with feminine beauty products and even the marketing, the branding. Um, There's a story from her memoir of her going into a bathroom and looking at the wallpaper and using that wallpaper as inspiration for her packaging of the next perfume or the next beauty cream. And unless you have a, a level of play and alignment with the work that, you know, is energizing for you, then it's almost impossible to be the best in that environment because other people will outwork you. If you can find a spot where you feel at home and joyful and like you have a level of delight in the work that you're doing. And even if you are toiling, Mm -hmm. like it doesn't feel so um, that, you know, you got to find an environment like that. Yeah. It took me 10 years to figure that out. 
Like it's, it's, it's not an, it wasn't an obvious thing early in my career. Like early in my career, it was like, well, cap one, it has a name, it has a brand. They tend to hire smart people. This looks good, right? It was to, to your comment earlier on like internal and external motivation. It was early days in my career. It's like, well, what looks good? Going to Columbia looks good. Let me do that. Working for Harvard Economist looks good. Let me do that. Um, working at Capital One looks good. Let me do that. Um, that wasn't the entire reason for it, but it helped that the stuff looked good to the outside world because I really didn't have a strong enough foundation in what I wanted to do, what my skill set was, how I could monetize that skill set. And then 10 years in, I was like, man, none of this crap matters if you're miserable, right? I, I got to be miserable at Cap One because things were moved too slow. I got to be miserable at, in research. And like the external recognition didn't do anything for me. The fact that my LinkedIn said former, whatever, cool sounding thing, like doesn't get you up out of bed in the morning doing interesting work, meaningful work. Um, you know, I worked at a company called Frontpoint. Nobody's ever heard of this company, but it was like the best, like one of the best two years in my career because I, I was asked to lead digital marketing there. I had never led digital marketing. I built a team there from zero to 20 over two years and just learned a lot. Like I had to figure it out and I had to get in there and do it. But the feedback loops were short. We launched a campaign. The next day we knew how it was doing. The day after that, we'd iterate it. We'd fix it. It was just fun. Like it didn't feel like work. So that's when I decided, like, I just wanted to be doing this kind of stuff. Like why, why would I go back to a bureaucratic place that feels like I work for the government? Like there's just, there's no reason to do that. If I had to, I would do it obviously, but there's, so much optionality right now in, in the world as far as how you can monetize your skills that you really shouldn't settle on that. It's a big dimension to your point. You're going to get out hustled if you're not enjoying what you're doing. Right. Hypothesis and testing and taking steps and then iterating. Um, I'm curious, you brushed over this at part of your career journey, but you founded a company. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? and how you arrived at making that decision and um, what the company was, what that journey was like for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's back to the theme of my impatience and my getting bored. I had been four years at Karma, um, running partnerships, building the team out. In year four, it was pretty clear to me I needed something new. Like the energy wasn't there, the drive wasn't there. Um, honestly, it just got a little bit repetitive, like the, the nature of the problems and the types of situations that came up were, I had all, I had seen them before. Like there wasn't, there wasn't anything, there wasn't a part of the game that was like, oh, this is interesting and new and novel. And let me learn that. It was like, let me just keep taking pages out of the old playbook. So, um, so the, so that, that's what kind of inspired me to say, well, what's next? So that, that was the trigger point for the question. About a year before that moment, I had I was just dealing with like a shitty personal situation. I had I had to navigate. I needed a lawyer, uh, or I thought I did, and I called a bunch of them. Nobody returned my call. I put in a bunch of like they all have this form on their website. I filled it out. None of them got back to me. It was like two weeks into this. I feel like I had contacted twenty lawyers. 
I just wanted to have a conversation to explain, here's the thing that I'm dealing with. Like, do I need you or not? <laughs> like, it, it wasn't clear to me if it was something that should go to court. If I had a case, I had no idea. So I, I needed a 30 minute conversation and nobody was around to take me. Like, it was very weird. I had never experienced this in any other like product category. When you want to buy something, like usually chase the hunt, you they'll call you twenty times, right? And this was the exact opposite. Um, I finally got a, had a lawyer call me back, and he charged me for the consultation. So it was six hundred fifty dollars. Oh my word! Yeah, yeah, for an hour. And I was like, you know what? This is important enough. Let, yeah, fine. Let's do it. We did the conversation. And then I, at, at one point during the conversation, I mentioned to him the story. I was like, what, how are you so buttoned up that you called me back and no one else did? Like, what's the deal? And he was like, oh, you were just lucky. Like I was supposed to be in court all week. Today I was off. I was bored. I saw your email. Like I wouldn't have normally seen it. So, <laughs> so like this whole thing happened. It kind of, you know, it was annoying, but I forgot about it. And then as I, as we were brainstorming, um, I was ta- talking to two former colleagues of mine that also wanted to start a business. And one of the ideas, one of them kicked around is a marketplace for lawyers, for people to find lawyers. And that when he first pitched it, I hated it. I was like, I don't know anything about law. I don't know anything about this space. I know stuff about credit cards, financial services. Like that's my sweet spot. Why are we doing something that so far uh, in left field? Um, but you know, he, he seemed very excited about it. So I, you know, I asked him to talk me through it. And then as I was reflecting on it, I remembered my experience and I was like, hold on. He thinks there's something here. I had a terrible experience with this. How could this look different? Like, how would we reinvent this? Like what's, what's the consumer problem here? Is there a problem on the lawyer side? And, um, what the, the product I conceived in my mind was something like ZocDoc. I don't know if you've seen them, but it's like, it's a website to find a lawyer or sorry, to find a doctor. So like you see their pictures, you see when they're available and you, you book. And that's what I conceived for this product is like, that's what kind of made sense to me. That's what I would have wanted is like, where's this website where I see all the lawyers and when they're available and let me just book that appointment. I hunted for weeks. Is, does this product exist? It didn't exist. I was like, okay, well, let's, that's what we're going to build. Let's go. And we, we all got excited. And while we were all working full-time jobs, it was a nights, nights and weekends thing. This was COVID, right? Like everyone was in their house. Everyone was bored. There's nothing to do. There weren't, you know, happy hours to go attend. It was, you know, clock in and out of your nine to five and then find stuff to do in the in the remaining time. So we were, we were running these experiments. Like we'd build these quick and dirty websites. We'd run paid ads on Google. And the first week we we ran a test, we had a customer the very first week, actually the very first day (laughs) we converted a lead. And I was like, huh, I wasn't expecting to convert anybody for months. What the heck's going on? And then every week we tweaked and made it better. It got better. And we, we got it to the point where we had 12 lawyers on the marketplace and we were doing five, 10 appointments a day consistently. 
And that's, that's the point where I said, okay, let's, it started feeling overwhelming to run like these experiments and trying to turn it into a business and also keep up with my nine to five. Um, so I, I put in my notice and went in full time and you know, the story go the, the story develops from there, but that was like, that was the Genesis Genesis of the project. Thank you for sharing. And, you know, there are several things we could touch on with the co-founders and the idea you having a personal experience with the problem itself and then seeing very early signs of potentially product market fit or traction, at least a demand um, and having that validation early on being something that, you know, continued the build. Um, you know, I'm curious, what were some factors that enabled you to take the step, put in the resignation notice? Um, you know, like what did your support system look like? And was this based on your previous notes or your journey? It doesn't seem like it would be too out of left field for you to go out and pursue something like this, but still um, curious about that. Yeah. So at the time I had... My son was two years old. He was with my wife and I all day in our thousand square foot condo in San Francisco, wow. <laughs> running around. We were both on Zoom calls. All so we were both full-time working professionals. And mind you, I was building this thing nights and weekends while I was working full-time. So like, imagine my life. It was getting woken because, and he still wasn't sleeping through the night, at least always. So like sometimes I was woken up at four when I had, I had gone to bed at one because between, you know, six and 9 PM, I was with them, you know, from nine to one, maybe I was working on the side hustle. And then he just decides he wants to wake up at four. And doesn't not go and just wants to play with daddy. So like this, I was just operating in such a fog on some of the days. And I knew that what we were staring at in the marketplace business was unique. And and it wasn't, it wasn't the type of opportunity I had seen before. Right. Like I, I I knew for the, for the, my two other co-founders to be willing to pursue it for us to already have some traction in the market. I didn't want the reason that it didn't work, that I was distracted, I was tired, I was sleep deprived, whatever. Like, I didn't want those excuses. I didn't want to tell that myself that story mm. four years later, or 10 years later, or whatever. So it, it's kind of like Bezos' regret minimization framework there. It's like, would I regret quitting? Maybe. Would I regret not giving this my full attention and energy and having, be the, having that be the reason it failed? Hell yeah, I would. So that was a big one for me. Um, the other one was I had been saving for like 15 years. You know, like we had been pretty disciplined with our finances. Like the money was sitting there for me to take the bet. Like if I if I didn't work for a year and we put, you know, the money I set aside for the business and it all just went down in flames, we'd be fine. Like I would get another job. We would still pay rent, nobody would know any better, right? So it, it took, you know, it took time to get to the point where I could place the bet. 
but you know, I was being financially disciplined in my life to be able to take shots like that in my career. And then like, I plan to take more of them. So that wasn't like a one, a one-off. Like I plan to take more of them. Um, so like, it just all came together for me and it, it felt like the right moment. And honestly, I was excited. It was that same feeling when, um, when I left the research and I was excited about poker. It's that same feeling. Like I'm excited about this. I want to do it. I want to put my energy on it. It felt like play, not work. And mm-hmm. that's exactly how it felt all the way through. And transitioning, you know, how do you approach failure and setbacks? Um, you know, this company is no longer in business. I'm curious how you saw resilience woven into that story. And can you pinpoint an example of, you know, a time that you turned a setback into an opportunity for growth? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the thinking about failure, I, I, I think about this one a lot. I write about it a lot as well. And I'm starting to reframe the, the whole concept of failure, at least for myself, because we, we often think about it as outcome oriented. So like the, the way you just said it, the business is no longer running, right? So therefore it must be a failure. It's one way to look at it, right? The, the other way to look at it is, well, what are we labeling as a success or a failure? Could be the outcome. And then the outcome you know, there's, there's really no debate. It was a failure. It didn't work. But how about the process? How about the decision behind it? Um, the decision to pursue it. I view that as a success, right? So like if I take the decision to pursue, yes or no, knowing what I knew at the time, I think I made the right decision, even with the benefit of hindsight. Because all the information and my context said, this is my highest expected value use of time. I think about that a lot. It's, it's, a, it's a principle from poker, right? The second you don't think sitting at the table is your highest expected value use of the time, you should leave, right? The opponents get too tough. You're tired. You're making bad decisions. You're frustrated. There's a number of scenarios that lead you to believe that your expected value went from positive to negative, and then you should take an action based on that. And in that moment in my life, I thought the highest expected value use of my time was to build this business, period. And I still think that was right. Um, so I view my decision to pursue it as a success. Um, did it pan out the way I wanted to? No. But I actually, I don't view that period of my life as a failure. I, view, I viewed it as I'm proud of myself for having seen the opportunity and having the courage to pursue it. Even though, you know, I knew the math on startups, like I've done my research, like, 90% plus failure rate is what I signed up for. I was okay with that. Um, so it, to some extent, it's not a surprise that it failed. It should have failed most of the time, given the math. But the upside was so big if it worked that it was still worth my time to, to take a shot at it. So that, that's how I tend to think about these things now. And there, there's, a, there's a book I always mention when I talk about this, Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. Um, she's, a, she's a former poker player as well. Um, also I think a psychology professor. So she, she shares the, the <laughs> poker, the academic research. And I, th- right. I think she's like breaking out into the business world now more and more. Uh, but that just, that book lays out in like a really clear way, 
how poker players think about success and failure, how they think about decisions. And like, that's to me, success and failure is, did I make the right decision with the information I had? Did I learn something from the experience? Did I enjoy the experience? Those are, those to me are bigger determinants of success and failure than the actual end outcome. The end outcome, Mm. to some extent it's out of your control. There's a lot of things Mm. out of your control with end outcomes. Um, but you can control the upfront stuff a lot, a lot better. So that's what I focus on. And as a veteran in the fintech space um, and just in the startup world, what sort of advice would you give to aspiring founders who are just starting out and either have started marching or are thinking, hey, do I march and pursue this? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think one I, I mentioned earlier, but I think it's just critically important is have your finances set in a way where like you can dedicate the six month or the 12 or the 18 or whatever. Like you don't want your personal finances to be an additional stressor. You're going to have enough stressors. You're going to have figuring out how to make, how to find product market fit, how to figure out distribution. If you need to find investors, there's like a number of hiring employees. It's um, writing up operating agreements. Like there's all sorts of stuff that I had to learn for the first time as, as a first time founder. If I also had to worry about how to, how I pay rent, I would have made bad decisions because I would have been worrying about, well, how do I get this to monetize day one, month one, quarter one, instead of let me build the right product, let me build the right foundation. So I, I think it's a huge mistake for founders to have any kind of financial need in the venture. Probably for the first year. Just have zero expectation. Assume you're, assume you're actually going to lose money. That's, that's what happened in our case. We were Not only was I not earning an inc- a salary, I was pumping personal money into the business to fund it. That's one of the challenges of bootstrapping. Um, I think this would be a lot easier as like a venture-backed founder where you have a little bit of a salary, you don't have your personal money on the line. Um, but as a bootstrap founder, I think that one's really critical. Um, the other thing with fintech have a background in lending or have someone on the operating team that understands lending. Uh, Most of the money in financial services is made in lending. It's kind of this super obvious, but not often talked about thing because there's so many businesses that try to make money off of interchange or transaction volume or all all sorts of stuff. Um, I see a ton of neobanks trying to do that. It got really, really hard for them when the market turned a couple years ago. And the reason is all the money is made in lending in, in financial services. And um, yes, having transactions and debit products, all that savings products, that's, that's fine. You should do that. You should get good at it. But if you don't understand lending, it's going to be, you just stack the deck against you to be able to ever make the business work. Um, so I, I was fortunate to have spent seven years in the lending business at, at Capital One. I don't consider myself an expert in lending. But I know enough about it to know that it's really, really, really hard. And if you don't understand it and figure it out, it's, it's going to be really, really hard to make your, your business work. So that would be number two. And that, that's specifically for fintech founders. Um, I mean, the, the third one, and the, I, I waver back and forth on it, but like imagine your life on the other side of the failed outcome. You know, the business doesn't work. Like, is it going to devastate you? Is it going to put you in a precarious place 
financially with a relationship with your spouse with your who knows like if the answer to that is yes you're probably taking more risk on than you should I, I feel really strongly about that and like back to poker like I never played games where you know my I would jeopardize like my financial wellness I would play in a game where like if I lost it might sting but I'm, I could bounce back and I, I, I see and hear about founders that take these outsized risks with either their personal money or with their careers. And it's just, that never made sense to me. Like, it's good to have passion and it's good to believe in what you're doing, but the rules of the game say very few succeed. So why put yourself in that situation where, again, back to needing it to work, I think it's just like the wrong, the wrong mental setup for a founder, I think. If it works great, it should be upside and gravy, but you shouldn't need it to work for, for you to have a good life. If it's all right with you, let's move into a rapid fire round. Yeah, let's go. Okay. I'm excited about this. <laughs> so number one, who's someone who's played an important role in your success besides your partner, your wife? Yeah. So both of my parents, so they, they always um, held a high bar for me and they, you know, in school it was you better get A's or else it was like tough, tough love. And I think that, I think that was what I needed at that point in my life. But as an adult, after I left for college, it was very hands-off. It was do what you want to do. Uh, we trust you and we got your back no matter what. Um, and like that, that came like when I, pursu- when I left the NSF scholarship and decided to play poker, I just, I was fully expecting them to freak out. Like, right. what the hell are you doing with your life? <laughs> like, you just got like we just put you through Columbia. We paid for it. What the hell? Now you're playing poker. Like this is crazy. Um, had they had that reaction, I would have understood it. I think mm-hmm. I might have that reaction if my son did something like that. Candidly, mm-hmm. like I just it's 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 a bit of an absurd notion to leave that great of an opportunity behind for something that just feels kind of reckless to to an outsider. Uh, but they've always had my back, and that's that's been a, a big part of my success. Um, I had a professor at, in college. He was the first to point out that um, I might have skills outside of just knowing being good with numbers. Like I, I, the, the first paper I handed in, he gave me an A, and he could have just handed it back and left it there. But he knew I was in the engineering school, and he made it a point after class to say, hey, that was exceptionally well-written. Like, I just want you to know you have something here with your writing. And like, I still remember that moment. It was 20 years ago. Right. And it was right. five seconds, literally. But it, cha- it changed the way I think about myself. Right. And like, um, I ended up RAing for him. We still like, I hit him up on LinkedIn last, you know, last year. And we had like a quick exchange. Um, but it was... Um, it was one of those five second moments that totally changed how I think about myself. And um, I still leverage my writing to like in my work and my career and something I get a lot of joy out of. And I, I don't know if I would be here if like that moment didn't play out the way it did. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And where else would I say, I mean, look, every, every manager that's ever hired me into a role, I would say has played a huge part in my success because every time I've transitioned, I had no business doing that next job. Mm-hmm. Like I had some, <laughs> I had like some of the qualifiers, like I could read the job description and say, yeah, I can kind of sort of do this stuff. 
but they were really betting on me as a human. Like they knew something about me. They saw something in me that said, you know what? You don't check all the boxes, but like, I'm going to roll the dice on you. And they supported me and they bet on me and they kind of cheered me on uh, every single time. And I, I, I definitely wouldn't be where I am now if like those managers didn't, um, you know, sign that blank check and hope for the best. So uh, that, and that's something I think everyone should look for when they transition is like, do you feel grossly unqualified for the job you just got hired to do? If so, good. Like that's probably a growth opportunity. You should probably right. take it. I always felt that way every time I transitioned. So those are, those are the ones that come to mind. Yeah. Now the second question, what's been a moment in your life that you played back in your mind it can be a high moment, a low moment, but a memory that has stuck with you. Yeah. There's, um, there's a moment where I was playing soccer. It was, I remember clearly it was a mother's day game. I was like eight, but I scored the winning goal and like everyone went nuts. And like, it was like this super fun, awesome moment. And, um, that one I've played over just cause I'm super competitive and like, I love to win. And that one just like captured all of those emotions and like right. a five second burst. So that, that was super fun. Um, I remember one of my earliest memories when I was like, it's probably two or one. I was still in Venezuela. I was in my grandmother's apartment. And I just remember going into the kitchen and watching her cook. I was like, she didn't know I was there. And she couldn't, she couldn't see that I was observing her. But I was just kind of in awe of my grandmother and what she was doing. And like, I think she was just like preparing a meal for all of us. But it was like this really happy, special moment from my childhood. So... Um, those are the ones that I play over. Like I, t- I tend to, I tend to go to joy when I, when I go to these moments. Yeah. And then final question, what's a song or book or movie that has inspired you? So I will, I'll leave you with two. Um, one is super out of character for me on movies because I'm, I'm normally <laughs> like action and psychology and thriller and like mm-hmm. intensity. And the, the movies I usually like um, kind of scare other people. They're like too intense. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> um, um, but the, the one that came to mind when you asked the question is this movie called About Time. It's a 2013 mm. movie. I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. I've Rachel McAdams it. is in yes. it. Yeah. And look, it's not critically acclaimed. It's not winning Oscars. There's plot holes left and right. But what I loved about the movie, it was like a totally different lens with which to view the world. Because the, the, the protagonist, Tim, has this power to travel back through time and to replay moments he thought he screwed up or didn't go well or whatever. And a little bit of a spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie. Um, but he ends up concluding in the movie that it's way better to just live things once and do it well the first time. And, and like the movie articulates it, I think, in like this really nice way. Um, the scene that's most memorable for me, his sister was in a car accident and like she got really injured. Something bad happened to his sister. And he went back to go fix that so that she wasn't in the car at that time. She avoided the accident. And then history plays out differently. And then he, come, he gets back home from work and his daughter isn't, is no longer at the table. 
It's a, it's a son. And he's like, hold on, what? My daughter's no longer in this world. And like, he starts appreciating that maybe things happen for a reason, right? Even if they don't feel like they're the right thing, that, um, you know, there's some kind of destiny or some, something beautiful about just the imperfection about the way things play out the first time. So uh, I think I think it's deeply philosophical. Although there are there are problems with the movie in general. So if you're if you're a nitpicker <laughs> with plot lines and plot holes, this isn't the movie for you. But if you like finding new perspective and things, I think it's a, it's a great watch. And then as far as book, I've probably listened to this book five times in the last year. Is the um, the Almanac of Naval Ravikant? I think it's just like this super thought provoking book on finding joy in your work, finding happiness in your life, finding leverage through writing content and code. And it's super meta, very, very big picture, not tactical at all. So if you like tactical and like, here's how to go get better, this is not the book. Um, it almost, it almost reads like the way Plato reads. It's like really big ideas but some of them hit you in ways that like, I just wasn't expecting kind of a modern author or thinker to, to hit me um, really forces me to kind of reconsider some of the things I'm doing in like a really good way. So hmm. um, both of these are kind of thinking books. And like that probably says a lot about my personality. I like, I like to be challenged intellectually. And I think both of those things did that for me. That's great. And where can our listeners learn more about your work and follow? your life yeah so um best place is probably linkedin um i write about a variety of things um fintech for sure so if you're interested in credit karma how to build marketing programs on karma i write once a week kind of a piece on how to do that um i share lessons from my career probably twice a week you know things i wish i could have learned sooner things I screwed up and how I'm doing things now instead. Um, and then I write about kind of human psychology and how it connects to the professional world through my lessons from poker, maybe once a week. So like, those are the topics I hit. Um, I'm not in just one lane. You're going to see some random stuff from me too on LinkedIn, but that's where I do most of my kind of short pieces and then longer stuff on medium. That's great. Well, Carlos, thank you so much for your time, for your story, for your insights. We so appreciate it. Yeah, it was great to be here, Christina. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks.